Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to the eighth episode of the Southwestern College podcast. I am here with my colleague, Alejandro Orozco, and um, he is here with his friend, Marie. And I'm going to pretty much sit out most of this one, but I will be chiming in here and there. Um, but mostly, it's going to be a conversation between these two. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to you, Alejandro. Yeah. Thanks, Luke, for setting this up. And I just want to say to the listeners that the genesis for this podcast came about when my son was uh, watching YouTube and asked me what I would think about this particular uh, speaker who was on there. And I had heard of Jordan Peterson before. So he said, what do you think about this? And Jordan Peterson was talking about uh, gender differences and the pay differences. And his argument with this British interviewer was that most gender differences, or excuse me, pay differences, probably owe a lot more to the proclivity of men to take on dangerous work, to work much, many more hours, to put their families in peril, their health in peril, many other factors, but kind of dancing around the idea that maybe there really are some issues of sexism here. And uh, so I thought, after listening to this clip, I thought, Hmm, I'm going to ask my friend who was at the epicenter of Big Pharma back in the late 70s and 80s. And so uh, to our audience, I would like to introduce my friend from the Bay Area. We're old friends from high school and college, and her name is Marie Delahaye. So Marie, uh, I'd like to ask you to speak to our listeners a little bit about your background, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, thanks so much for inviting me on this podcast my first ever podcast. As Alex mentioned, we um, go way back, um, went to high school together. Um, I went after high school, I got a degree in biology. And um, after some time was able to secure a position first at a small pharmaceutical company. And then and then I, after a year and a half, went to uh, Genentech, which at that time was the first biopharmaceutical company um, created based on recombinant DNA technology. And um, when I started there it was the early 80s. And I went on to spend probably 20 years in the um, biotech space um, and worked my way up the career ladder. Uh, I happened to uh, go into the area of biotech that was um, considered manufacturing or operations. And that was uh, definitely um, an area that was very male-dominated. So I've had a lot of experience working in male-dominated areas. Um, more recently, I am working for a software company. And also throughout my experience, I, I did quite a few career changes. I got a master's in clinical psychology. I've worked um, for several nonprofits. And I've also worked as a, a personal development coach. So I, I have kind of an eclectic career, but um, I can certainly speak to the experience of a working women uh, working their way up, especially, you know, historically during the 80s and 90s. And I, I'm happy to say that I think some things have changed quite a bit since um, I was in my uh, 20s and 30s. Yeah. But, 
Yeah, go ahead and ask me anything. Sure, and and we're really excited to have you here, Marie. Just your background just puts you, you know, gives us a, a, a big insight, I think, into this issue, which, you know, is a nationwide conversation. This is, you know, at the at the heart of a lot of discussions that are going on probably all over the world. So when I saw this clip and the way that Jordan Peterson characterized the the pay inequality between the sexes, I thought he seems to be dancing around the issue that there could just be one major factor that he's not willing to discuss, and that's just straight up a, a, a sense of discrimination or inequality that really is based on gender difference, the sexes. And uh, so his argument about it's really a matter of testosterone, it's a matter of, of men having much more risk tolerance. He mentions specifically about how men will go to Alaska and lay pipe in the oil fields, you know, when it's 40 below zero and put up with miserable conditions, things that women, because they are more sensible, would never do. So he, he you know, attributes these differences to simply the, the risk factors that men have. We're, we're fighter pilots and we'll take on, you know, very dangerous positions. So what do you say about that in his characterization? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I just, uh, I don't agree with it. Uh, I think he's bringing up, you know, very small numbers of uh, certain kinds of occupations that might be high risk, but it, that doesn't at all explain the disparity between men and women's income. You, I don't think that can explain it. And you can look, I've looked at, you know, some stats in preparation for having the, this discussion. And, and first of all, you know, one thing to really look at is the rate at which women have um, increased uh, the, the number of women that are getting college degrees, which it now surpasses men, you know, in terms of uh, getting college degrees. Um, and so historically, of course, uh, women used to not be in large numbers in the workforce, except in certain kinds of professions, you know, um, but that has changed a lot over the, the past decades as more, I mean, there's economic reasons for this uh, in that, uh, there was a time in the 50s when families could survive on one income. That doesn't seem to be the case for most parts of this country. But even beyond that, you know, I was I was actually reflecting about the fact that my, my mom was also a working mother. Um, and maybe that is not the case as much, uh, you know, certainly for my peers, their moms worked. I think it was more 50-50 whether moms worked. Uh, you were kids, but I think nowadays you know, our kids obviously are used to having working moms, and it's just there's a lot more percentage of women in the workforce than there ever has been. Yet the, the pay disparity um, continues you know, in, in every single field. There, there's not a field where women are making as much as men. Um, and, you know, there probably are certain companies that are that are really working on this. Uh, in fact, I work for a large software company um, that is you know, has uh, software that manages things like compensation. And in fact, they're, they're doing a big effort to uh, try to get um, customers to look at bias in the whole reward system. 
because quite honestly, when you move up in in terms of salary, uh, a lot of salary is determined by, quite honestly, confidence in asking for larger salaries. And that is an area where men, I think, are, tend to be more confident. Right. Uh, making the demands. Yeah, from- Jordan Peterson actually mentions that specifically, that there's a quality called agreeableness. And because women, according to him, tend to be more agreeable, more collegial, I guess, more, uh, you know, uh, community-based, I guess, they uh, they tend to be more agreeable more and, compassionate. and more compassionate. And men tend to dispense with that virtue and will be more aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. But you know how it's a double-edged sword for women because as soon as you assert yourself, there's a lot of labels that get thrown on women. And you see this a lot in in the public sphere around politicians, for instance, women politicians. If if you get a little demanding, a little bit less pleasant, there's a lot of um, characterizations. And, and blowback. After. Yeah. 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 So it's a very uh, fine-edged sword for women moving up into um, more powerful positions, leadership positions in terms of if they were to act like a man, that would blow back on them. Yeah. So what do you uh, um, attribute these differences that that you and I probably would easily agree on? I think even Jordan Peterson would agree that there are differences. However, he characterizes them as, you know, based on just simply, you know, the differences between the sexes. Yeah. Can I, can yeah, I add just the, you know, somebody might argue that there are certain professions where there are biological reasons why more men or women go into them. You know, like some would point to there's more women as kindergarten teachers and um, that work with kids. And some might say, well, that's that's not a gender pay difference. You know, there's no disparity there, except it's just the differences in the sexes. And I'm curious, how would you respond to that? that sort of argument. I mean, I think that, yes, you know, women have gravitated towards certain professions um, versus, and and men have gravitated towards other positions. But but I think in, in all cases, there are men that become kindergarten teachers and there's women that become fighter pilots, right? And 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 then in those cases, are their salaries identical to each other? In some cases, yes. In in some cases, no. It depends on the the setting. I think you find more certainly government um, institutions, for instance, certain institu- types of institutions. I think lend themselves more to to having more salary schedule where the salaries are the same. Corporations are. Um, much more flexible about salary. Yeah, the difference between private and public. Exactly. Yeah. So that that's where there there can be the disparities in the income. But but I think what what I think I mean I'm talking to you two. You're men. Jordan Peterson's a man. I mean I think what what men tend to discount is the way men look out for each other and are used to each other. So for instance, my in my career. I worked in, in with a lot of men, and I was often... Can you talk about the ratio, for instance, uh, Marie? Well, I mean, when I moved up in into management, I was often the only woman. And, you know? and what was the proportion? Well, like on, on the, my leadership teams, I mean, there was, there, I was one of five to ten uh, in, on a leadership team, and I would be the only woman. And I would find myself in... in meetings with a lot of peers, and it could be 20 men, and and I'm the only woman. 
and, and in working with men, I mean, I definitely, it's difficult when you're the only, and I think this is the case for anyone that is the only one of a kind. In Underrepresented a group. Yes, underrepresented group, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, this happens to lots of people in terms of ethnicity or even sexual orientation, where there's just a tendency of the majority group to speak a certain way, expect certain things culturally, how, how you interact with each other. Um, uh, to me, my experience was it, it was a good old boy network, and men were so comfortable patting each other on the back and having their little inside jokes. And it was all about stuff that men are interested in. Nothing I was interested in, but (laughs) you know, you just get get along with that. Also at the time when I was moving into those leadership positions, a lot of my peers that were men, if they had families, they had stay at home wives. So I would be after, before I could even embark on my commute to get to work, I would be taking care of my daughter, getting her ready for preschool, taking her to preschool, peeling her off of me at preschool, and then driving to work. And here comes my boss or one of my one of my peers, and they just got fed breakfast by their wives and didn't have to do anything with the kids. <laughs> and that that's the difference. I think that the really good thing in in the present generation is where there's a lot more um, couples and families where both parties work and they and they play a, a little bit more of an equal role. Yeah, share, shared responsibility. Shared responsibility, to an extent. But I met most of my women friends, women still do the bulk of the taking care of the kids in terms of even if they're in whatever childcare situation, there's always many things around running a household that women still do on top of their day jobs. So you, know? you mentioned the, the good old boy network, and you probably have some specific examples of that. Is that the predominant reason why we see differences in pay schedules, especially like I can say in the private sector? Is it really just men's comfort that allows them to write in contracts that say, this salary will be for this person, but for a woman, it'll be for this person? Is it, is it the comfort level or do you see other things that, that well, will... I, I mean, a, a key factor, and, and I've taught my daughter this, who's gotten very good at bypassing this. But a key factor in corporate salaries is what you're able to negotiate at the time when you're hired, and um, because that really dictates your upward trajectory is the entry level salary that when you first start, and um, I think that there is a confidence gap there as well as it's it's a shell game because a lot of times you don't know how much you can push on asking for a lot more. And again, I think that is where men tend to have the confidence factor. So what if I play the devil's advocate right here and say that, well, then that's on women, you know, and and fault and their fault for not being more aggressive. What would you say to that? I mean, I mean, it's, it's again where women have to play the men's game. So in a male dominated world, women have to, to be, to succeed, they have to act more like men. And I think that's a shame because it doesn't actually, it's not a balanced way of looking at things. How would things be different, for instance, if it was more like a woman 
who was you well, know, let coming. Me give you the, so yeah. I, let me give you an example because I was just reading an article the other day about a company that is run by a woman CEO. And in, in that case, they actually changed their interviewing process. So really to make it, and they, and they ended up with, it's a software company. Well, it's kind of a software retail company and they have a, a technical staff that's 35% women that that's really high for the tech industry because tech industry is very male dominated but they changed how they went about and interviewed and evaluate candidates. And so when you're, you know, this is where, and in fact, also the company I work for, where they're trying to get people to understand bias. It's so important to understand how bias is so, it's just inherent, very invisible, unless it's brought to your awareness. Right. What, what did they do in this interview process that showed more sensitivity toward a woman candidate? They, so here, what they did is instead of having in the, I guess in the application process, part of it was solving a technical problem all alone. And in their process, they paired the candidate who was applying with a non-technical staffer and collaborated. And that enabled them to find out more about a person's creativity, in fact, through a collaborative model than just a loner figured out by yourself model. And, and so that's quite interesting because creativity, for instance, if you're looking for creativity, creativity is, is kind of hard to, to determine just through an application and interview process. So they've, uh, they've changed their process a bit. And as a result, they have been able to increase. They didn't do this through quotas or anything, but it enabled them to identify candidates that might not have been otherwise been identified through. Did, are you aware of any other like techniques that they would do in their interview process? Not, not specific. This was from an article. So I, I don't know, but I'm just saying this is an example about how uh, we, you know, a more diverse, more mixed gender setting might come up with different solutions to problems than a, a purely male dominated workforce. And, and I mean, I, th- and another example I can give you actually is that the, the company I work for actually is also um, has done a whole program to hire more people with autism um, in, into the workforce. And in that case, they, they changed their interview process in order to accommodate those that are autistic. Because, the, again, the, the interview process, the traditional interview process was, was biased against People with autism. And they, and they nice. probably wouldn't have known, you know, like, it's like what you don't know that you don't know. You, of course, of course, they couldn't, you know, anticipate it because they don't see things through somebody's eyes like that. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, in, and what are the things they, my understanding is some of what they've done is, is to give them more of a project to work on. I mean, a lot of times interviews are very much about the interpersonal connection and the communication when the work itself it work itself and some technical work does not require that much of that interpersonal connection because it's very highly technical work marie can i yeah. ask um maybe this will come up in the course of the interview but can i ask if it would be really cool if we could see some specific examples of the discrimination you faced at the hands of the men you were working with in management <laughs> or underneath um, yeah 
<laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you actually. This is this is kind of a funny example because it was done by women. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> but for there, there was a throwing a, us a curveball, are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm just telling you that sexism occurs in all different ways, shapes, and forms. You know, we're, we're all but, ears. <laughs> the, the, the example that I, early on, um, well, fairly early on, I was at, at a supervisory level and I applied for another department that I was quite interested in, in going to. And I was surprised. I went on, It was before I went on vacation. I found out that somebody that was just a technician in my department also applied for the same position. And it was a quite higher level position, something that I was much more at the right level for than he was. So I thought that was kind of cute, but it, he, it was a guy that applied for this position. And anyhow, the, the, it was a small department of women and they didn't have any men in their department. And when I came back from vacation, I mean, I thought, I thought for sure I was going to get the job. Cause in fact, I knew some people in that department. And in, in fact, they had hired the guy they had, and, and, and purely because they didn't have any guys in the department that's that's how do you feel about that it was i mean it it definitely threw me a curveball and i i mean honestly it was a sex discrimination suit if i would have wanted to take it anywhere because i knew for a fact people people that in that department told me they hired him because he was a man uh, you right. know, which was it was pure sex discrimination. and you were clearly more qualified and I was more qualified. I was more qualified. What other episodes would you say that, yeah, like Jordan Peterson's analysis might, you know, work in some cases, but, you know, there's other factors at play. What what else have you seen where you could say that, no, there, there's much more incidents here of just straight up discrimination and uh, unequal treatment? I mean, I think that it's as a woman especially when I worked with so many men, I mean, there was a lot of sexual harassment that occurred, um, not necessarily discrimination that I could prove. You know. It's always subtle, hard. kind of more subtle. subtle. Okay. Yeah. You know, discrimination is something that is pretty difficult to even be able to identify, especially when you're the, the person that's being discriminated against because you you need to have you may know of of um, other situations. You right. Know. Yeah, you but, need to have the smoking gun, and that's really hard to procure. It's very hard to procure. That's why my example, I mean, I happened to, I mean, I talked with people that um, told me, oh, we hired him because we wanted a guy. You yeah. Know? <laughs> but, but on the issues of sexual harassment, if you wouldn't mind going in, as, as sensitive as that is, there, that also is a is a window to kind of see that there's differences of treatment, and yeah. and and for that reason it would be interesting to explore if you are willing to talk about some things that actually happened to you where you could easily see that, you know, there, there was something very very wrong or uncomfortable about the situation. You I mean, were in. even if it was just a comment in a meeting, you know, or an offhanded comment that was very sexist or discriminatory. Well, I, I mean, I have to say one of the things that was probably helped me in, in working with so many men is I, I was raised with the two brothers who are immediately older than me. So I was kind of used to how guys are. But I'll, when I um, first uh, started at Genentech and I was just at the technician level and nearly all of the other guys in the department, all the other people in the department were guys. There was one other woman at the time. And um, luckily, I, I got to be really f good friends with with um, 
one guy who really enlightened me a lot about how men think about women, <laughs> which was like uh, very eye opening for me because I did not know how much at that time. And I again, this was this was like the 80s. And I think, you know, people have evolved and changed and I've implied this is the, the way that things are now. But what would he tell you about? Well, he would he would tell me that he would stand with other men and watch me walk down the hall and they would ju- and one would just say to the other, would you? And the other guy would be like, oh, yeah, I would. If I had a chance, I would. And you, you can understand what that was implied to mean. But so this uh, is a guy disclosing uh, the way guys think. This is the way guys think and talk. I mean, so this would not be said directly to me. It would be said behind my back for instance. I, I mean, like, there was this one time, I mean, some of the scientists there were just um, very big egos. Um, and, and I was, one time I was in, in, a, in a lab situation with, of course, other, all men, all different men. And, and this scientist, he, he got really mad at me because I didn't have a hair cover over my, because we were in a, environment where yeah you're not supposed to you're supposed to wear hair sometimes people wear hair covers i mean literally the guy next next to me his hair was just as long as me you know wow. but he didn't need a hair cover <laughs> i needed a hair cover that's oh, a wow. great example and, so, and, and it was clear that he directed his attention toward you yeah probably the worst example um that was very embarrassing for me was that i was in a meeting with pretty much all men because I had helped start up this large scale plant where we produced our product. And, you know, the large scale plants in the biotech industry are quite similar to, to the chemical industry, you know, lots of large tanks, piping, all that kind of stuff. This was dumb. like off site at some other place, like land that you had purchased and, and you know, the it was in the building that we were bringing online okay. for large scale production as our products got bigger, you have to make more. And, and so your scale gets larger. And um, I had helped. And that's always a big startup situation to start up a new plant and test all the equipment and get everything in place. So there was a party to to kind of reward uh, me and two other guys who had been on loan from different departments to help that startup effort. And they gave everybody like a bottle of whiskey, but I got an extra present. And the present was this mug that said, and they had me open it, of course, in front of all the guys, show everybody what it said, which said, I'd walk a mile for that thing you do with your tongue. And I was so embarrassed. I was the only woman. How many people, like what was the ratio? There was like probably 20 guys from, you know, managers up to the vice president. And they all had a big laugh about how funny that was. And there I was, you know, what do I do? Now, were there any guys, I'm just curious, were there any guys in situations like that that pushed back and said, guys, this is, you know, this isn't cool? Or did everyone kind of go along? After the meeting, I, I, I did talk to one guy and he and I was like, who got that for me? And he told me who got it for me, which was my boss. And um, and he said, that's pretty bad, huh? And I was like, yeah. Now that boss, I have to tell you too, that Anita Hill, 
and what she did during the Clarence Thomas hearings made a huge difference in the workforce. And I don't know that people, because it was quite a while ago when that happened, when those hearings were held, but that boss, after the Anita Hill hearings, said to me later on, I guess what I did was kind of like sexual harassment, huh? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yes, that was it. And and after the Anita Hill hearings, is are actually when, corp- at least, you know, at the corporation I work, where they started doing training around what sexual harassment is. It had not and discussed. I mean, I think it made a huge impact. You know, companies started paying attention that they actually had a responsibility to not have that kind of environment that that was tolerated. Or, and and not to you know beat an old horse here. Do you have other remembrances of you know just things that were awkward and painful, and that you know that's of this sort? Before we move on to other things, I just want to give you opportunities here. I mean, I think that was the worst one. I mean, I think it happened so frequently. And I uh, honestly, until the company started saying this was wrong, I just, as a woman figured, I just had to suck it up and deal with it and not, and I certainly wasn't going to make a big deal about or a big stink about anything because I knew that was not in my best interest in terms of my career. So, uh, I mean, I think that's what, Lots of people do. I mean, what are you going to do? Right. I mean, in whatever field that you're talking about. So, and you were typically the only female. It was not like you could collaborate with other women, you know, kind of check your impressions with. It seems like you were pretty alone at Genentech. And then you were also at Abgenics, right? Yeah. And I mean, I I think what I did over the course of my career, I mean, at that time in the 80s and 90s, I was the only woman, but it did start changing in that there were more women over time. And I like to think that I I know that there were women that looked up to me for having been at the level that I was so that they felt like they could also move into the kinds of positions that I had. So I think it's always helpful where, wherever someone goes. So the work environment, when it's hostile in that way to, to women. I mean, it takes some women to go in there and do it anyhow. And women have been doing that across the board in lots of fields. No, you know? of course. Now, did women, once you were kind of like, I guess, a little bit more senior in, in terms of your work experience, did you find women would seek you out and tell you about some of the you know, experiences that they were going through? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yes. For an example, I, I took over a department at one point that had been under a man for years and years. I mean, there weren't that many female leaders. Literally, within a, the first week of me being in charge of that department, I had a woman in my office telling me about sexual harassment by the previous boss. Right. When she could come to you. When she could come to me. And that, that department had been run that same way by that same guy for probably 10 years. So... Yeah, I mean, I think it, women are more comfortable talking about these things with other women because right. until that happens, as long as there's a certain work environment that's, whether men are aware of it or not, if there's not any conduit for women to be able to complain, then the, those uh, kind of hostile work environments will 
continue to exist. Right, and be and be underreported. <laughs> yeah. Of, yeah. You know, if they, you don't have anywhere to go. So Yeah, right. I mean, like I said, she was in my office the first week and and there had been some pretty bad harassment that had been taking place for quite a long time. So you're saying that um you know, discrimination per se is really hard to explain, especially if there's like pay differences cuz who knows like how human resources is parceling out, you know, one payment to one person and the reasons why it's difficult to, to maybe know how it's happening. We probably have a record to say, well, it is happening. There's differences of pay here, but you know, whether they can attribute it to some kind of actual policy of discrimination, but on the other level where, where discrimination has another phase of sexual harassment, you would, you would characterize your experience as being something that was daily, just you know, environmental. In other words, it was saturated right within the environment. Would you say that that's true? Something that you were always impacted by? Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's just part. It was just part of the culture, which is interwoven. I mean, I think I just I got to a point where when I first got in that environment, I just figured there was nothing that I could do about it. It was it was it was what it was. It was only when I was at higher level positions where I could speak up about it. Once I developed enough of a, you have to develop your reputation and, and a, a name for yourself that people respect what you have to say before you can really say things. Right. Marie, knowing you as I do and um, your, your background, your intelligence, your capabilities, what did you find when you might have been actually smarter and more capable than the people that you were working with? <laughs> what, what would happen on those levels? Again, like anybody that's an underrepresented person in a certain environment, you do have to prove yourself over and over. I mean, you have to be like at 150% of your peers. When I think back of the men that I saw who were really very mediocre. And sloppy. Yeah. And yet they would get promotion after promotion. And part of it was they... Like I can, I can think of this one guy in particular, he was an engineer, but he commuted with a couple of the senior people. So they were buds, talked every day. The work wasn't, was not anything, like I say, it was mediocre work, but he got promoted just all the time. I mean, I think that's, you see, I mean, that's pervasive. People have relationships and and um, I think this is always something that, quite honestly, I think human resources departments do try to work on making the work environment fair. And, and um, but it's always a work in progress. It reflects the culture of the corporation. And there are corporations and, and work environments that make our, it's more important. Their values are such that it's more important to them to make things fair. And there are other work environments where that's not a value and it's not that important to the leadership to make it fair and to ensure that there's not bias. It takes leadership to take on these kinds of challenges and confront them and think of how to combat them and make things more fair. That leadership isn't always there. You know, the leadership is lacking from lots of places. Yeah. Marie, were you ever targeted uh, in terms of being a troublemaker, you know, just a perception that you might have felt as being, oh my God, she's at it again. 
you ever get well, any kind of experience like that? I did. I did. Have, I mean, it makes me laugh because I, I am kind of a troublemaker. So what can I say? Uh, I had a very clear sense of what I think is right and wrong. I was actually in that same situation where I was helping start up that plant. Um, the guy that was originally in charge of that plant was was the someone I had reported to previously and, and was, in my mind, a, a terrible um manager and leader. Um, and when I got to the plant, there was a lot of things going wrong mm -hmm. um, with it. That were, and, that were just falling through the cracks? Yeah. Just, yeah. just and, for and, my curiosity here, what was, what was this plant developing? What kind of uh, medication or... Um... Oh, at that time, we, were, we had a new product that was, um, that was for heart attack victims, for dissolving the blood clot when somebody gets a heart attack. Yeah, so you guys were like on a big payday when Genentech was doing really well. I mean, these were these were drugs that could be like real rainmakers. I mean, so the the pressure. Yeah, I mean, it, it in a way it, at that time of Genentech, it was still really trying to. It hadn't achieved huge uh, monetary success. It was still on its climb up to that because it was a lot of things were being done for the first time. Yeah, I mean, you know, at that time, you know, there was the big pharmaceutical companies that had all of these drugs that were based on chemicals, but Genentech was really the first um, biopharmaceutical where the drugs were being made using the recombinant DNA technology and where there's a biological system where in which originally creates the proteins or whatever uh, and then are... Um, purified and things for medication so but you were asking me about the troublemaker thing so i was just gonna say that when i saw how things how badly things were happening in that in that plant and the head of the plant his boss was the one that had put him in that position so i went over that guy's head so i basically went over two people's heads um <laughs> to the guy above them and and I told him what I what I saw. Actually, me and two other people. It was three of us. I remember getting pulled in. What what happened is they did end up replacing that guy with somebody else that was better. But at the same time, the, the one of the guys whose heads I went over, he pulled me in his office and he told me, "Don't ever do that again," um, in no uncertain terms, and because. I had gone over his head and I made him look bad. I mean, there was so much at stake, I felt, for the company at the time that it, it was just not going to be successful if they allowed that to continue. Yeah, so. yeah, Marie, these uh, reflections are really, really great. It's like what we really wanted to hear from you. But I, uh, knowing you as I do, I know that uh, you uh, have a Buddhist philosophy. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us, because we have a philosophy podcast and some of our listeners will our, our listeners will be interested in philosophical topics. Can I add uh, when you're done? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and so I'm wondering if there have been ethical stands that you've taken, you know, in the corporate world based on your Buddhist philosophy. I would just add this as well, Marie, is that you're clearly a very capable, intelligent person who's um, hard in the sense that you can deal with a lot of these issues. And what's sad about that is that other women who go through them may not be able to deal with it. Uh, you know, because it's such an uneven playing field, as you've been saying. And so I, I would wonder, I would imagine that relates to Buddhism in some way, because Buddhism, of course, teaches you to 
uh, be at peace with yourself and to be able to handle external situations. And so I would just add that into um, Alejandro's question. Yeah, okay. Well, well I, I've been, I was drawn to Buddhism from a very young age, um, 12 or 13, and didn't actively pursue it until later in my life. But I was always, it just resonated for me. In my experience as I moved up, and I, I think this is something for younger people to really consider as they look at their career choices. As I moved up in the biopharmaceutical world, I got much closer to the business decisions that were being made. And when it comes to something like medicine, which is for people's health, and combining that with a business perspective, which is a profit motive, there becomes a, a conflict. I, I became more exposed to the decisions that are made at the top about drug development and what drugs are developed and what are, what isn't and uh, what companies do to enamor the stock market and the the shareholders and those decisions um, which are not the decision making process is not typically public at all um, you only see the outcome of those decisions I became increasingly uncomfortable with seeing how those decisions got made. I mean, when I was at Genentech, actually, and I was, I took a class, uh, I was always taking classes on the side, and I was taking a class on ethical issues in management. It was part of an organizational, I was starting to think about maybe getting a master's in organizational leadership. I ended up writing a paper about the ethical issues around the pricing of pharmaceuticals. The pricing of pharmaceuticals, it's a dirty business. Like, there's no way that... Um, I mean, this is my opinion, of course, and I'm sure pharmaceutical um, executives would disagree with it. And I know that, but, but in my opinion, the decisions that are made around the price of a pharmaceutical, a lot of it has to do with what the market will bear, uh, how, how, how much, especially life-saving medicines, you know, what, is, what are people willing to pay for their life? Right. Those are, those are. Do you remember any drug in particular that might have, you know, been particularly stick out in your mind that. Well, every, I mean, every, I can tell you every drug that when you look at the pricing, none of the pricing decision has anything to do with the needs of the people for this drug. Yeah, there's no, humanist, there's no humanistic value there. There's not a lot of humanistic value. What, what pharmaceutical companies may do is they may create programs for low-income people to still get access to the drug. But the price will have a lot more to do with what the market will bear. Anyhow, there's there's lots of factors, but but it's not pretty. And I I went to that same VP. I complained about that other bot, that other plant. I went to that same guy because I was encouraged by someone in human resources to go talk to him about the paper I'd written. And at the time, they were doing a, a trial yeah, to really prove that their drug was superior to another drug. And, and I started talking to him, look, you know, I, I really, I did some research on this and the way in which pharmaceuticals are even prescribed, patients don't have a choice. Their doctors are saying you should get, take this drug. 
And he and so anyhow, and he said, so are you thinking that after we do this trial and if we show that our drug is superior, that we should actually lower the price? And <laughs> I said, yes, you know, I think that would be great. Lower the price. That's you, Marie, so out of step. <laughs> and then he Get was very, he was like, he was very polite. He was like, thank you very much for your opinion. <laughs> do, you, do you still have that paper, Marie? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I do, Alex. That would be, I mean, just, of course, just purely an aside. I would love to see it. But um, Marie, uh, in terms of like your your Buddhist philosophy, your background, uh, how did that concretely help you to kind of make decisions? You know, because I think that the background was that you eventually moved away from that pharmaceutical world. I mean, I I, I worked at a couple more... um, biotech companies after that but really as i i I just got to a point where i you know one of there's a in in buddhism there's the eightfold path and one of the parts of the eightfold path is right livelihood and i just felt that there was a conflict between my feeling about right livelihood and working for companies that make the kinds of decisions they do, particularly about pricing. And that was really an ethical principle in your head that made you feel like you needed to take an action. Yeah, I realized I, I just wasn't I wasn't comfortable any longer in in that industry because of the way it's uh, the profit motive. And and the money must have been good for you back back then too, Marie. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised that I could. I mean, I had an opportunity to, to transition into high tech and pretty much maintain my salary, which was great that I, I could do that. Yeah, right. So in other words, even though you were making an ethical decision, you, your skill set allowed you to kind of still land on your feet. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that that's the best of both worlds. You can, yeah. An ethical decision I mean, I and you're still employable. Yeah. I mean, I didn't necessarily know that that kind of unfolded to my great luck that turned out to work. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty adaptable, so I can figure things out in lots of different environments. And I, I was just going to mention, you know, like I, I worked at a community clinic for a year and a half, a completely different environment. But, you know, a lot of my skill set is pretty transferable to lots of different settings. Right. Because you, you have background in a lot of things, management and uh, yeah, and the, te- and tech, the tech world as well. Did, how did your um, Buddhist background help you on a day-to-day basis? Because, you know, Buddhism sort of teaches you to not take things as personally and to kind of, you know, one of the principles behind Buddhism is interconnectedness, that we're all one, um, and there's the meditation practice. Was there a way in which your um, practice of Buddhism helped you on a daily to deal with a daily sexism that you experienced? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say that I, at the time when I was experiencing a lot more uh, what I'm talking about in terms of um, sexism and sexual harassment was before I would really consider myself that much of a practicing Buddhist. My Buddhism has really, it's really deepened over the last 10, 15 years. Right. Mm. So in the first part of your career, it was just basically you were survive, you're a survivalist, you know, survival mode. I've got to make it here. I've got a family. And yeah. Yeah. What helped me a lot, and I, I'd certainly, and what helped me at some pivotal points was actually therapy. I, I had some situations at work that if uh, I wouldn't have been in therapy, it would have been a lot harder to manage, particularly around. I mean, I had some pretty terrible bosses, and I also had a pretty difficult father, you know, so just navigating 
the world where you see repeating patterns, it's helpful to get insights from. Yeah. I'm assuming theory. that they were male male bosses. Yeah. 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 And and yeah. and were there things that they exhibited in their behavior which would be typical of male males and you know and what what were you seeing with these other bosses that you're describing? Certainly, some of those men w- had terrible interpersonal skills and lack of compassion or con- care or concern for individuals. They, uh, I think that at that time, the company was quite young still, and leadership skill and ability, interpersonal skills were not valued at that time. And, and as the company grew and matured, those types of individuals were not as successful. So I think in general, what I, what my take was that in any specialized industry where there's a limited number of people with the skills you need, the technical skills, a lot of times a lack of interpersonal skills is tolerated much more because you need the technical skills that the person brings. Yeah, the wonky scientist with his lab coat, he's, he's kind of out of touch, but you need him for your business. Right, yeah. right. And I mean, I think that happens in, in lots of technical industries where there's a small set of people that have the technical knowledge you need. And so you don't have the leverage to get them to get more educated about how to be better interpersonally. Yeah. How do you tend to feel when you run into women that have, you know, uh, mm. personality types that where you you know you see things that would almost be masculine and especially when we're talking about ma- negative masculine uh, attributes do you see that for instance I, I mean I haven't seen that as much I, I quite honestly uh, although I know that women and I know what I realized at a certain point was that if I wanted to get to the next level I would have to change myself so much to be like a competitive male, aggressive sort of personality that I didn't want to do it. Yeah. That's what Jordan Peterson basically says in his defense that this is not always owing to pure sexism is that men are willing to be ugly in the pursuit of money and women, for a lot of reasons, tend to be more humanistic and not willing to completely lose themselves in a corporate world. Well, I, I think that if you look at more mature corporations, for instance, and organizations, they typically see that there's there's lots of um, detrimental effects by that very aggressive male kind of character that is bad for business, quite honestly. So, so typically, more mature organizations would wouldn't want depends i mean maybe maybe there's some fields where yeah where, who knows in the financial fields or maybe in in law or in government i mean there could be a lot of places in which you know those personalities or types are still really predominant so but, you, know, you know when i managed departments i always i found that the workforce the people that were on my team when i had a better balance between the two genders it, it just made for a much better work environment. Either direction, I mean, you know, Alex knows, um, you know, my husband, he works in uh, as a teacher, and it's, it's a very female-dominated uh, arena. And, and I just think balance is just something that is really a positive for uh, a lot of aspects of work, having, having a balance between genders and 
having diversity in your staff. It just it's better and it's stronger because you have when you have more diverse viewpoints, especially as a leader, I always liked having more diverse viewpoints. It gave me more ability to consider options. Yeah, and absolutely. Absolutely. Marie, and, and kind of like to bring us full circle, uh, what what kind of trends do you see these days, you know, would give you some hope uh, in yeah. terms of like workplaces that are trying to move toward more equality and egalitarianism? I'm very hopeful about the the millennial generation. I mean, I think that a lot of there's a lot more egalitarianism between men and women uh, in the younger generations, which is fantastic. I and see it too. Absolutely. We, yeah. we both see it. I mean, we see yeah. millennials, of course, and this is going to be a podcast that a lot of 18, 19, 20-year-old students are going to listen to because we're going to promote it. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and we typically see that in our, in our um, uh, classrooms all the time, is that millennials tend to be way more tolerant. Extremely tolerant. Way more tolerant, people. way more, yeah. uh, less, less serious about taking themselves so seriously, their body types their anxieties, their phobias, they're much more able to talk about, you know, having issues, being depressed, being despondent, not knowing what their future is. I see it. Don't you see that? Absolutely. Too? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we ask people to write little private one minute papers all the time to get a little assessment of the, of what the classroom is thinking about a particular issue. And millennials, I mean, it, whatever criticism that they take, you know, the snowflakes yeah. and you right. know, the microaggressions, you know, the, the horrible characterizations that everybody makes about them. I see them as having tremendous upside. They've been given a bad deck of cards. Yeah. That, well, that's what often doesn't get appreciated is there's sort of a culture of scarcity and college is getting more and more competitive with fewer and fewer places to go to college and then to get a job after um, so millennials are dealing with this in a way that previous generations did not. Yeah, and I, and I find it much more communicative. Uh, communicative, but is what do you see also in terms of you were you were talking about millennials that that are hopeful in terms of trends. When when you look at the trends, also in terms of women penetrating various areas in, in greater numbers, and I mean certainly the most recent election is is very positive in terms of women moving into political positions. You're talking about the House of Representatives, how the numbers really increased a lot. Yeah. 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 In state legislatures too, there's still a long way to go. But the more I think in most areas you see as it's an upward trend. It it doesn't it's not gonna just go back down, I don't think. No, I mean no, no. I think the the toothpaste is out of that tube. (laughs) I don't think we're going back. And I think the country's at a place right now where it's just so uncomfortable because we're fighting this new battle of of where people who have been marginalized are now having this voice and that's why there's so much ridicule from certain sectors of society that, that they that they must punish this this new group of people that's aware of their differences and aware that they need to have a voice and that's why you see so much you know ridicule of of people when they when they complain really you know i i know that it may be threatening to some some men as they see more and more women that they have to compete with. But by the same token, I think men are also seeing the opportunities available to them where perhaps they don't have to be the main breadwinner. Maybe their maybe their partner can and they perhaps they can take more have more involvement in their child's lives. And it's a huge difference for children to 
to really have both parents involved in their lives. So I, th- I hope that that men, as they see the world changing in terms of more women in different positions of leadership and power and things, that they also see the, the tremendous positive benefit they have to, you know, move into careers that maybe have been dominant. I mean, look at, I know when I've been in, in hospital settings and there's male nurses, I mean, it's great. So I'm always very, I'm always very complimentary to male nurses for them doing that. It's not easy being one of the few of a, of a certain gender in a certain field, but some people start there and more and more get into it and, and things balance out and it'll be better for everybody. That really illustrates the, the problem is, you know, this, this it's systemic and so on some level, and this is a problem, this problem of gender. I mean, it affects men in a, in a sort of indirect way as well. Right. I mean, look at the, the toxic images that we have to have of being the breadwinner of, of putting our health and our mental sanity at risk because of all these things. And, you know, we, we, we all stand to gain when women become more educated and more empowered. Yeah. Those are our partners, potentially. Yep. And I mean, and they've showed this in, in global development that countries where women get education is, is the most important thing. For the development of the country. For the development of the country. Absolutely. So absolutely. It really, it's a, it's a really important factor, and it's really to the betterment of humanity. Yeah, and I think what a, what a nice uh, kind of a note to close on. Marie, uh, I want to reintroduce your name again to our audience. Marie Delahaye from the Bay Area, a good friend of mine for many, many years. And uh, this was just a real, real nice, joyful even opportunity for us to talk to you, get your voice out there. And uh, thank you for speaking with us today about these issues and uh, your insights in the kind of like in the the belly of the beast. (laughs) Thanks so much, Marie. It's been great. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity, you guys. We thank you very much and enjoy the the rest of your day. All right. Bye, Marie. Bye. Bye. Bye.